0: We're looking this evening at discipleship that is hidden. And if you remember, uh, we were looking at a previous talk, maybe last Wednesday, discipleship that is visible or discipleship, let it show. Uh, And Bonhoeffer says this, we are confronted with a, a paradox. Our activity must be visible, but never done for the sake of making it visible. Let your light so shine before men, and yet... Take care that you hide it. Think back in chapter 5, where Jesus says, let your light shine before men. And here at the beginning of chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And so there's a challenge in getting to the heart of what, how we m- m- marry those two together. So we're going to look first of all at the hidden righteousness here in verses 1 to 4. And Bonhoeffer says, that which is visible must also be hidden. The awareness of which Jesus insists is intended to prevent us from reflecting on our extraordinary position. We have to take heed that we do not take heed of our own righteousness, otherwise the extraordinary which we achieve will not be that which comes from following Christ. But that which springs from our own will and desire. Now, remember what he has said that being a Christian, we're following an extraordinary Savior, and the way we live should be extraordinary. It shouldn't be the common thing. If someone challenges you to go one mile, you go two miles. Someone hits you in the cheek, you turn the other cheek. That is not normal. And we are not to be normal. We're to go the extra mile. We are to be extraordinary. But he says the problem here is if we focus on ourselves and focus on what we do, focus on how we're extraordinary, focus on how we're better than others, he says in reality that hasn't come from Jesus if we're focusing on self. It springs from our own will. And so when he talks about hiding hiding what we do, it's not just hiding it in a sense of just not dropping in every good deed we, did, we do for others to hear it. It's even hiding it from ourselves. A number of years ago, uh, Cheriff and I did a sponsored walk for leukaemia and lymphoma. And I remember doing that, and at that time, I remember reading an article about somebody, I think it was in England, and this man who had got addicted to fundraising, uh, fundraising for charities. He got so addicted, he, he even lost his job. He even sold so much. His marriage broke up because of it. He just got absolutely addicted to this fundraising. And I thought it was crazy, but then when funny when you did, we did that walk, I could understand. When you do something that is good... You feel good about yourself. And that man, he was doing these good deeds. I'm sure people praised him for good deeds. He got addicted to it. And this is exactly what Bonhoeffer is saying, is when we're doing our good deeds, we get caught up in ourselves. We focus on ourselves. He says, that is not right. And when we're doing things just to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, he says, this isn't coming from the life Christ, He goes on and says this here, another quote, "...from whom are we to hide the visibility of our discipleship? We are to hide it from ourselves. Our task is simply to keep on following, looking only to our leader who goes on before, taking no notice of ourselves or of what we are doing. We must be unaware of our own righteousness and see it only insofar as we look unto Jesus." Then it will seem not extraordinary, but quite ordinary and natural. If you know people who are exceptional people, but also very humble people, one of the things about them is, uh, it just, it's not just that they have a, don't have a very high opinion of themselves. It's that they don't really have much opinion of themselves at all. And that's what he's saying there is we need to be doing these things and not focusing on ourselves. What we should be focusing on is our leader, focusing on Christ and just following him, not reflecting on ourselves in the sense of I'm a great fellow, I'm a great girl and doing what Jesus calls me to do. He goes on and says this, genuine love is always self-forgetful in the true sense of the word. But if we're to have it, Our old man must die with all his virtues and qualities. And this can only be done where the disciple forgets self and clings solely to Christ. When Jesus said, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, he was sounding the death knell of the old man. And so he says, here's the real problem. This sense of being caught up in Christ and not focusing on self It goes against the old nature. Now, remember, our big problem is not primarily the sins that we do. It is sin within. It's that nature of sin that we're born with. Now, when we trust in Christ, we're born again. The new nature comes, but there's still the battle of that old man. And so, what he is saying the problem is, it's that old man. That old man always wants the glory and the honor. We always talk about sin. The center of sin is the letter I. Sin focuses on self. And so what he's saying, we have to seek to kill that old man. We're to, not to focus on self. And one of the ways we, we know we're focusing on self too much is, is if we feel proud of ourselves, thinking we're great for what we do, Or we feel sorry for ourselves because others aren't saying we're as great as we think we are. And so it's just getting that focus of self. And the key to this, as he says there, is clinging solely to Christ. The Christ just dominates us. He quotes Paul where he says, I live, yet no longer I, but Christ lives in me. It's Christ, it's all about Christ. And a disciple is someone who is all about Christ and loses a sense of themselves. So he talks about this hidden righteousness. It's not just about not dropping it there. I I know a a friend of mine who's involved in Christian work, and he always has to tell you what he's doing. And I think it possibly is a lack of insecurity. He also has to justify himself. But what he's talking about here. It's just losing a sense of self and realize we focus on Jesus. So that's the first thing, the hidden righteousness. And then secondly, the hiddenness of prayer, verses 5 to 15. And Bonhoeffer says this, It is even more pernicious if I turn myself into a spectator of my own prayer performance if I'm giving a show for my own benefit. I may enjoy myself just like a please spectator or I may catch myself praying and feel strange and ashamed. I can lay on a very nice show for myself even in the privacy of my own room. Now, think about a prayer meeting. And when we come together in a prayer meeting and we're praying, and one of the things is The temptation is that we pray, and this is what Jesus is speaking about here. We pray, but thinking about what others will think of our praying. And really, it's crucial when you come to pray in a prayer meeting, you don't totally forget about who's there, because when we pray, we're praying together and encourage each other. But what we are to do is to focus much more on Jesus. And when we focus on Jesus, on the Lord, on God who we're praying to, then our praying will be fine. Our praying will be okay. So if you want to pray all right, you don't focus on trying to pray to impress other people. You focus on the Lord. But here Bonhoeffer saying the danger is that we pray to impress ourselves. We pray in order to put on a show, even for ourselves, in our own room, even. And so it's again the same principle. When we're praying, in a sense, we have to forget about what we are doing and focus on who we are talking to. The praying isn't the important thing. It's who we are praying to. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in a very good sermon on uh, Matthew 6, the way he pictures it, and I think it's very helpful, he says, it's a bit like if you're driving a car and you have good company with you and you're chatting away and before you know it, you're maybe 10 or 20 miles further along than you realized. You have covered the ground so much quickly because in a sense, now hopefully your eyes are on the road, but you've almost forgotten about the driving, and the conversation just carries you along. And really he's saying in a sense, the conversation is the conversation with the Lord. It's that fellowship with Christ. And it's as we focus on that fellowship of Christ, in sense we get c- c- carried along, and we don't focus so much on what we're doing. We focus more on who we're doing it for. He goes on and says this, and how another thing about the key to this: the only way is by mortifying our own wills, which are always obtruding themselves. And the only way to do this is by letting Christ alone reign in our hearts, by surrendering our wills completely to him, by living in fellowship with Jesus and by following him. Then we can pray that his will may be done, the will of him who knows our needs before we ask. Only then is our prayer certain, strong, and pure. And then prayer is really and truly petition. You see, the crucial thing he is saying there, it's not so much how we pray. It's not so much technique. It's a state of our hearts. And it's whether we have hearts which are the flesh is mortified. That's an old word the Puritans use, put to death. The old person is put to death, stamped down whether it's like that so that Christ will rule or there's the old person ruling and when we pray when we do anything what I have to ask is how much is it of William the old William how much is it of the Lord and you have to ask that as well and the key the key to this and we'll come on to this more the key to this is how close we're living with Christ, how much we're allowing Christ to take over our lives, how much Christ is reigning within. It's a state of our heart. This is why it's talking about discipleship that is hidden. Before we get it right about what we do externally, it's the means of grace working within us. It's the means of grace changing us, making us holy, sanctifying us within. But Jesus also focuses. He talks about the danger of repetition in prayer uh, and just repeating the same thing over again. And he gives us a Lord prayer. Let me just make a few quick comments about the Lord's prayer. Just a few things that Bonhoeffer brings out here. First of all, our Father which art in heaven. He just says they call upon a father who already knows his children's needs. And he says elsewhere, the sense of pretense, the sense of putting on a performance will disappear the more we have that sense of being a child coming to the father. And, you know, we need to realize just how dramatic Lord's Prayer is. If you have your Bible open at Matthew 5, Sinclair Ferguson did his wee illustration. If you have your Bible open at Matthew 5, and on the left-hand side of the page, put your thumb and hold the Bible, and the right-hand side of the page, have your thumb and hold the Bible like that, okay? Now, you look and see the left-hand side, which covers from Genesis 1 up to Matthew 5, Do you know how many times in that big, thick part of the Bible we are encouraged to talk to God as our Father? Zero. And in this thinner part from Matthew 6 to the end of Revelation, 18 times we are encouraged to talk to God as our Father. Zero, 18. What's the difference? Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes so we can know God as our Father. In many ways, for the people in the Old Testament, God was glorious, God was majestic, God was loving, God was compassionate, God was righteous, but he wasn't known as our Father. Jesus comes and says, our Father, my Father, your Father. Let's go on the Lord's Prayer, a few other points. Hallowed be thy name. A tremendous quote here from Bonhoeffer. He says, in this name, the whole content of the gospel is embraced. May God protect his holy gospel from being obscured and profaned by false doctrine and unholiness of living. And may he ever make known his holy name to the disciples in Jesus, in Jesus Christ may he enable all preachers to proclaim the pure gospel of saving grace, defend us against the tempters, and convert the enemies of his name. That's what it means when we pray, hallowed be thy name. It's not just about not taking God's name in vain. It's so that the gospel would advance, the gospel would indeed spread, the gospel would cause people To honor the name of God. Then he goes on, thy kingdom come. He just mentions, God granted the kingdom of Jesus Christ may grow in his church. That's interesting. So often in the church, in our own hearts and lives, there's so much more needs to be brought under the rule of Christ. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. In fellowship with Jesus, his followers have surrendered their own wills completely to God's. But the evil will is still alive even in the followers of Christ. That's why we have to pray in our own lives, I will be done, because the old person doesn't want it to go that way. Give us this day our daily bread. He says, as long as the disciples are on earth, they should not be ashamed to pray for their bodily needs. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Every day Christ's followers must acknowledge and bewail their guilt. Never take it lightly. Lead us not into temptation. The disciple is conscious of his weakness and does not expose himself unnecessarily to temptation in order to test the strength of his faith. Lead us not into temptation. We're wanting that grace to like be like Joseph and Potiphar's wife's presence to run from temptation but delivers from evil. It's interesting what he says about that. It is a prayer for a holy death and for the deliverance of the church in the day of judgment. That's ultimately when we will be delivered from all evil. And then, for thine is a kingdom. The disciples are renewed in the assurance that the kingdom is God's by their fellowship in Jesus Christ. The hiddenness of the prayer life. And then, thirdly, the hiddenness of the devout life. Moving on here to verses 16 to 18, and particularly thinking about fasting here. He says Jesus takes it for granted that his disciples will observe the pious custom of fasting. Strict exercise of self control is an essential feature of the Christian's life. Such customs have only one purpose, to make the disciples more ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. Fasting helps to discipline the self-indulgent and slothful will which is so reluctant to serve the Lord. And it helps to humiliate and chasten the flesh. Now, it's not often we, we hear sermons on the subject of fasting. I think uh, my first evening service as minister in Brookside, I spoke on fasting. And, uh, for example, fasting is mentioned far more in the Bible than, say, something like baptism. And yet it's not spoken of today very often within uh, Presbyterian circles. And yet our our forefathers, before they would have come to communion, would have had a, a fast day. But it's interesting there what he says, that it just highlights the exercise of self-control as an essential feature of the Christian's life. And he says this is necessary to make the Christian ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. And it's this self-discipline, it fights against self-indulgence and the slothful will which is reluctant to serve the Lord. There's something about when we want to do the Lord's will, there's something about our, our bodies, which are still of by sin, which just works against it. And he says one of the ways to chasten our bodies, one of the ways to help combat that is the practice of fasting. And he uses to speak about a the wider subject of asceticism. Asceticism is defined in the dictionary as severe self-discipline and denying self-indulgence. And he goes on and says this about asceticism. He says, If there is no element of asceticism in our lives, if we give free rein to the desires of the flesh, we shall find it hard to train for the service of Christ. When the flesh is satisfied, it is hard to pray with cheerfulness or to devote oneself to a life of service which calls for much self-renunciation. I can't remember which Olympian it was, but I remember a number of years ago. I think it was the time of the London Olympics Olympics. <laughs> And uh, some of the British athletes who won a a gold medal and they said, what are you going to do now? And the the reply was, I'm going to have a burger. Uh, They hadn't had a beef burger for several years because they were in such strict diet. They didn't want anything to come in to their bodies which indeed would work against their goal of winning that gold medal. Now, what Bonhoeffer said, if we are serious about being disciples of Jesus, we need that self-discipline. Now, asceticism, there are dangers with it. Now, I don't think there are too many within the Christian church or today who are in danger of going too far. In it. It's too much the other way. But if we are going to be faithful disciples of Jesus, we need this self-discipline. We need to say no to certain things, certain things which will inflame the flesh and worldly desires in order to give room for us to grow in the things of God. Bonhoeffer goes on and says this. He says, we have to practice the strictest daily discipline only so can the flesh learn the painful lesson that it has no rights of its own. The flesh resists this daily humiliation. We claim liberty from all legal compulsion, from self martyrdom and mortification. We thus excuse our self indulgence and our regularity in prayer. But the contrast between our behaviour and the word of Jesus is all too painful. All too painfully evident. So he's saying there, we claim liberty from legal compulsion. We don't want to be seen as legalists. And we excuse ourselves not being self disciplined because that's legalism. And Bonhoeffer says, you have a problem. Because if you're saying we can just indulge ourselves, you're badly out of step with Jesus. He says we need, in order to, the strict daily discipline. The strict daily discipline of the study of God's word, of prayer, the discipline of meeting with God's people, and saying no to things that will harm us in order to let this happen. He goes on and says this, The motive of asceticism was more limited, to equip us for better service and deeper humiliation. But it can only do that so long as it takes the suffering of Christ as its basis. If not, our whole motive now becomes a desire for ostentation. We want other people to see our achievements and to be put to shame. And what he says there is so corrective and so balanced. The danger is, it's a bit like what I said about... Uh, Involved in charity work and things like that. People can get a high from it. And people can get addicted to it. People can get I was speaking to someone last week about who went to a gym and people can get addicted to going to a gym and things like that. There's a way that people can get addicted to asceticism, just being it's all about the discipline. And Bonhoeffer says here, no. We have to be disciplined, but it's not to be all about the discipline. He says here, it has to be on the basis of the suffering of Christ. It has to be for Jesus. It has to be in response to what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has died. He has suffered so that we could become holy people. How do we become holy people? We need to be self disciplined. We need to be disciplined in the use of the means of grace. We need to be disciplined in our study of God's Word. We're disciplined in the place of prayer, disciplined in the Bible study, disciplined, disciplined at Sunday services. Now think of what we were thinking about there earlier. Think of what we have looked at about the hidden life, about uh, not being focused on our good deeds not being focused on self. Even as we pray, not being caught up in ourselves, but being caught up with Jesus. Now, how does that happen in reality? How do we be caught up with Jesus? How does Jesus consume our minds, our thoughts, our hearts? How does that happen? It doesn't just happen. It happens through a life of discipline. It happens through a life where we say no to things which would hinder it. And things that could hinder it are not necessarily things that are bad in themselves, but things that can become too important in our lives. So we have to say no to things and then devote ourselves to those things which will help us to grow prayer, the study of God's word reading a good Christian book listening to gospel praise instead of listening to some radio program mixing with God's people, being involved in outreach, being involved in Christian charity that happens Christ becomes more and more in us but it's through discipline and you know it's one of the big weaknesses of the modern church uh, there's a there's a talk uh, about the modern society, the snowflake generation people talk about, and certainly for generations which haven't suffered or gone through difficult days, as other generations, there's sort of a sense they haven't much backbone. I think we live in very comfortable days. Uh, we live in days, by and large, where things have been comfortable, and so often within the Christian church, there's no focus on self-discipline, things like midweek, going to Bible study, the prayer meeting, they're seen as optional if you're not too busy. There's a complacency in this. If we want to be people, if we want to be a church, which is more and more about Jesus... These things are not to be optional. These aren't things that are to be so serious about because it will not happen otherwise. And that leads us to our final part, which is the simplicity of the carefree life from verse 19 on where he speaks about do not lay up treasures for yourselves and, and not worrying. Bonhoeffer says the life of discipleship can only be maintained so long as nothing is allowed to become between Christ and ourselves. What are we really devoted to, he asks. That is the question. And we all need to think at times, what comes between Christ and me? What are the things in my life which would hold me back privately from reading the Bible and praying, what are the things that I would more easily do than that? What are the things that would hold me back from coming to the midweek to the prayer meeting, from coming to morning and evening service? What are the things that hope would hold me back? What are we really devoted to? He goes on and says this, and the danger of this, the heart is dark when it clings to earthly goods, For then, however urgently Jesus may call us, his call fails to find access to our hearts. Our hearts are closed, for they have already been given to another. As the light cannot penetrate the body when the eye is evil, so the word of Jesus cannot penetrate the disciple's heart, so long as it's closed against it. Jesus put it very clear, you cannot serve two masters. And if the things of this world, if material things, we have sold ourselves to them, then the voice of Jesus doesn't penetrate. And so you cannot be serious about discipleship if you have too big a grip on the things of the world. And he goes on says this about earthly goods. He says, earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. He uses the example of the children of Israel in the wilderness. He says, how they were given manna every day. They had no need to worry about food and drink. Indeed, if they kept any of the manna over until the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciple must receive his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, He spoils not only the gift, but himself as well. Uh, What Bonhoeffer is saying is that the children of Israel, in getting the manna every day, and then getting double portion on the Friday before the Sabbath on the Saturday, they were being trained to trust in God to give them their daily bread. And he says, we need to be like that. We need to be those who regard your needs. We need to trust in God. Now, he says this, good question. But where are we to draw the line between legitimate use and unlawful accumulation? And so, what is legitimate? Preparing things. We think of the book of Proverbs If you look at the book of Proverbs again and again it warns against the slothful person the lazy person it uses the example of the ants and it warns that those who don't work hard will not have a harvest so the Bible does talk about indeed making preparation and not being foolish but the other danger is what is unwarranted accumulation? He gives us two answers first of all Everything which hinders us from loving God above all things and acts as a barrier between ourselves and our obedience to Jesus is our treasure and the place where our heart is. So it can be anything that hinders us from loving God above these things. It can be our jobs become too important to us our houses, our gardens, our hobbies? What are the things that would hold us back, become a barrier between us and Jesus? And then he goes on and says this, secondly, the way to misuse our possessions is to use them as an insurance against the moral. In other words, what he's asking is, where really is our trust. Is our trust in our possessions, our bank account? Or is our trust in Jesus? Yes, the Bible teaches us to be like the ant, to labor and to make preparations so that we have a harvest. But there's a very fine line between making good preparations to then going across the line that our faith is not in Jesus or the Lord, but is in our possessions. If we make preparation for tomorrow, we need to do it, but realizing that tomorrow is dependent totally on the Lord. It's a sense of where our mindset is. Where do we turn to when problems arise? Are we really trusting the Lord? Now, you know Bonhoeffer's way that there's a danger that we can try and talk our way around the challenging words of Jesus. If you were to lose your home, if you were to lose your job, if you were to lose everything that's in your bank account, Has your world totally fallen apart if you still have Jesus? I think that's a good question. Isn't it? What are you really trusting in? Because the danger is, if you're trusting in your bank account, your job, your possessions, if you subtly have come to trust in these things, those things can become more important than Jesus. When I'm speaking to couples who are getting married, I speak about the pattern of marriage and the pattern of leaving parents. And Al Martin, who is an American Reformed Baptist and a talk that he's done on marriage, he speaks of four ways that indeed married couples should leave their parents. Uh, they should leave them authoritatively. they 're not under their rule anymore. They should leave them emotionally, in the sense that maybe before marriage, the bride 's closest relationship was with her mother, now or her father, now it become it has to be with her husband. So leaving authoritatively, leaving emotionally, leaving financially. And the danger, he says, if you don't leave financially, where you become dependent on your parents financially, the emotive part gets blurred. The authority parts become blurred. And sort of the influence of the parents within your life and your marriage can be sneaking in there again when you are a new family. And so he says one of the best ways to do this is to leave them geographically. But you see the point? If you are dependent on the world, your bank account, your house, your job, emotionally, that can become more important or will be more important than Jesus. So he's not saying to us here, give up your job necessarily. Sometimes he does. He's not saying sell your house or give up all the money in your bank account. Sometimes he does. What he's saying is you need to have a loose grip to these things and realize that these things are there for you to help you serve the Lord but must never be more important than Jesus. He says this This quote here, he says, either, what he's talking about Jesus here, either it is an intolerable law which men will reject with indignation, or it is the unique proclamation of the gospel of the glorious liberty of the children of God, who have a father in heaven, a father who has given his beloved son. So either we'll see what he says about not loving the things of this world and not loving money, but seeking first the kingdom. Either we see it as an intolerable command and law. That's too much, Jesus. Or we, the penny will drop. And realize that this gives us a liberty. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about my bank account. I don't have to worry about my job alone. I'm there. I need to do it diligently for the honor of Christ. I don't particularly have to worry about these things. Why? Because I have a Father in heaven who watches the birds of the air, who watches over me, and I can trust Him, trust Him fully. One final quote. He says, But the disciples know that the rule is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fellowship with Jesus and obedience to his commandment come first. And all else follows. Get Jesus in the right place. I think it was Martin Dickey did a children's address, uh, which annoyed me because I had seen his children's address and was going to use it some Sunday and he used it one night uh, where he got a pile of wee stones and put them into a big jar or a vase or something. And then he tried to get the big, oh, he put the wee stones in first and then the big stones in and it didn't work. And then he did it the other way around. He put the big stones in first and then the wee ones fitted in all okay. What a picture of how we live our life. Get the big things in the right place. Jesus. Spiritual discipline. Get those things in the right place. And to all else, will wonderfully be fitted aright. The problem is we are tempted always to put the wee stones in first. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And, oh, Father, there's, there's this wonderful mixture of both challenge and glorious encouragement in what Jesus says. And Lord, just may this truth just penetrate into our hearts, penetrate into our thinking, and change our thinking according to your will, according to your truth. Father, forgive us if we have a wrong idea of discipleship. Forgive us if we still hold on to that cheap grace this idea that we can profess faith and basically live as we please. Lord, I just pray that for all of us here tonight and for all who profess faith within our congregation, Lord, that we would be serious about discipleship. And Father, that Jesus would become more and more in our minds, in our thinking, in our hearts, that we would be disciplined, Father, that we would be serious about this, and that, Father, that through this we would become more like him. And, Father, that when we obey you and do those righteous deeds, Father, we will just have the attitude we're unprofitable servants just doing our duty, when we pray that our focus will not be on our words, ourselves, but on you, our God. And, Father, that in regards to things of this world, our trust will not be in them, but, O God, in you. O Father, for such grace we pray, for such grace we need. In Jesus' name. Amen.